This is The Rounds Table. All right, welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. We have two articles in store for you today, uh, one related to delirium, one related to dementia. John, what's up first? So first up, we're going to talk about lecanemab in early Alzheimer's disease. This was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, January 5th, 2023 by Van Dyke et al. And what was the research question? They wanted to know, can a monoclonal antibody that targets amyloid removal improve outcomes for patients with early Alzheimer's disease? And why did this article catch your eye? I'm sure you've probably heard about this amyloid hypothesis, and it speculates that, you know, there's an accumulation of beta amyloid, which is actually an amyloid precursor protein, but that these plaques that can then develop can lead to neurotoxicity and maybe is the culprit for dementia. Lecanemab is a monoclonal antibody and it binds a soluble beta amyloid protein. And there was this phase 2b study, and although it didn't show significant difference at 12 months, it did show that at 18 months there was less clinical decline in patients with early Alzheimer's disease. So this was the phase 3 study, uh, really being done to look for safety and efficacy in patients with early Alzheimer's. Cool. Yep. Seems pretty reasonable. Um, so what was the study design here? Uh, so this was a multi-center double-blind placebo-controlled trial. Patients were randomized one-to-one to either the lecanemab, which is an IV therapy given every two weeks, versus an IV placebo. So for eligibility, patients were age 50 to 90 with either mild cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's disease or mild Alzheimer's disease-related dementia based on the National Institute of Aging Alzheimer's Association criteria. All participants had to have objective impairment in episodic memory with at least one standard deviation below the age-adjusted mean on a memory scale. Now, when it came to the primary outcome, this was a change in the clinical dementia rating scale from baseline to 18 months. Uh, This is a validated outcome measure based on interviewing patient as well as their partners, uh, be it like care providers or spouses, and it assesses six domains, including memory, orientation, judgment and problem solving, community affairs, home and hobbies, and personal care. And there's sort of a total score that ranges from zero to 18, and a score of 0.5 to six is indicative of early Alzheimer's disease. There were a number of secondary outcomes that were considered, including uh, the amyloid burden on PET scan, some other cognitive scales as well. And then for the stats, you know, based on the phase two study, they estimated that a treatment difference of 0.373 on that scale would be maybe clinically meaningful. Uh, And this was a modified intention to treat analysis. Gotcha. So phase three, double blind, placebo controlled, uh, people are getting IV lecanemab every two weeks versus placebo. And the primary outcome was change in clinical dementia rating using the scoring system. Do I have that right? Yeah, you got it. All right. So what did the patients look like who are enrolled? Well, about 5,900 patients were screened, of which 1,795 underwent randomization. There were 898 in the lecanemab arm and 897 in the placebo arm, and about 82% of participants in both arms completed the trial. Uh, The mean age was 71. 52% were female, 77% were white. Most had had a diagnosis for about 1.3 years, but symptoms, you know, for about four years. And then most patients, or about 62% in each group, had mild cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's disease, with the rest having mild dementia due to Alzheimer's disease. Gotcha. Okay. And primary outcome, what did they find? So... 
what they found for the primary outcome was that at 18 months, the change from baseline uh, in clinical dementia rating was 1.21 in the lecanemab group compared with 1.66 in the placebo group. And this was a difference of 0.45 with a confidence interval from negative 0.67 to negative 0.23. And it was statistically significant. Now, the secondary outcomes, you know, there were a bunch of them. They did show that in patients who had PET scan data, that there was a significant mean change in amyloid levels compared with placebo at 18 months. And then for some of those other cognition scores, they also showed some reductions. Now, I think the safety data is one thing just to think a little bit about. Similar rates of death occurred in both groups, 0.7 and 0.8%. But serious adverse events did occur a bit more commonly in the lecanemab arm, 14% compared with 11.3% in the placebo group. And there were a few different types of kind of reactions that they saw. One was just an infusion-related reaction to the lecanemab, but there was also a bit of a signal for increased risk for AFib, syncope, and angina. But they also identified that there was uh, cerebral micro or macro hemorrhages, which they kind of identified on imaging. And it did happen more commonly in those who were on lecanemab, sort of 17% versus 9%. Uh, most, about 80%, were asymptomatic, and 81% did resolve on imaging at four months after detection, um, but some side effects nonetheless. Yeah, crystal clear side effects without a crystal clear benefit that's clinically meaningful in my mind. But anyway, what were the main limitations from your standpoint? Uh, you know, I think the big thing is this is a measure up to 18 months. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about the importance of the measure itself, but we also just don't know what happens beyond this time point. You know, the natural history of dementia is a bit complicated, but I'd like to know, like, what are the long-term effects, both benefits and negative side effects of this therapy? Okay. Take home point. Uh, so lecanemab was associated with less decline on a clinical measure of cognition and function compared with the placebo. All right. And practice changing for you? So not for me, you know, as you've kind of already alluded to, they identify that this is maybe a clinically meaningful change, but we don't really know that. And it's a pretty small change in a, this compilation score compared with placebo. And I think that that's largely offset by the side effect profile. I think we have to remember too, that these are patients with mild disease and the data does not yet show that there's any meaningful reduction in more you know, relevant, well, relevance may be the wrong word, but what I want to know is like, is this medication going to prevent moderate or advanced dementia. And no, this does not do that. It might slow down the rate of cognitive decline, but there's this side effect profile of like bleeding complications, which could be very important. So no, I don't think I'll prescribe this. I think the FDA may have approved it already though, question mark. Yeah, but the FDA will approve just about anything I've learned. So yeah, I agree with you. You know, there was also a case report in the New England a couple weeks ago about a patient who got lecanemab um, then came in as a code stroke, got TPA. Did you hear this case report? Did you see this one? No, 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 I didn't. And subsequently deteriorated, code was called, patient died. The autopsy showed that they had a really bad intracranial hemorrhage. And the thought process here was that they got lecanemab, which probably made some tiny holes in their brain <laughs> to you know um, break up these amyloid plaques. And then they got TPA and boom, you know, dead. And this patient was enrolled in the trial. So anyway, a, a sobering case report and likely indicative of things we might see in the real world, either for patients who are on this drug and get TPA or who are on this drug and maybe are started on anticoagulant. So woo, doesn't look good to me. 
Yeah, I don't think so. And, you know, I got to double check, but I'm pretty sure at least from kind of a Health Canada perspective that they are not in the process of approving this medication yet. Yeah, that sounds right to me. Okay, and uh, this episode, similar to recent episodes, um, has been brought to you by the Sault Ste. Marie Physician Recruitment and Retention Program, aka SUMED. Mike, you were up at the Sioux not too long ago. Uh, how was that last time up north? Always terrific. As the trainees I work with know, I'm a big fan of the Sioux. Heck, as the emergency docs know in Sioux St. Marie, I'm a big fan of uh, locuming there. And, you know, uh, we've created two electives. So for family medicine residents or internal medicine residents, if you want to come to the Sioux, uh, spend a few weeks on uh, elective, you're more than welcome to. No weekends, no on-call, no overnight. And then there's also many jobs. So um, Sioux is hiring, uh, you name the specialty, and they're probably hiring for it uh, as well as looking for family docs. Oh, that sounds like a pretty good elective. As soon as I hear no call and no overnight work, you sign me up if I was a trainee. How can you say no? Exactly. But anyway, okay, um, back to the rounds table. So um, next article, uh, Haldol for the Treatment of Delirium in ICU Patients, uh, published in New England Journal, November of 2022. The acronym was the AID ICU Trial. So what was the research question here? Among adults in the ICU with delirium, does Haldol improve clinical outcomes? Excellent. All right. Nice to see a trial looking at this question. Why did you think it was important? Haldol is frequently used to treat delirium in patients in the ICU, heck, on the ward as well. Um, but there's very limited evidence that it's effective. And we know how common delirium is. And we know how commonly patients get treated with antipsychotics, despite the fact that we have great randomized trial to support this. Okay. How did they do this study? This was a multi-center blinded placebo-controlled trial predominantly conducted in Denmark, as well as Finland, US, and other parts of Europe. The population, so it was adults with delirium admitted to the ICU. They allowed deferred consent to be included in the trial. Inclusion criteria, age 18 and up, you were in the ICU for an acute condition, and you were CAM positive, the uh, you know confusion assessment method. There's an adapted version that's used in the ICU. Um, main exclusion criteria or any contraindications to Haldol, um, if you were on an antipsychotic prior to hospitalization, or if you received an antipsychotic in the ICU before randomization, the intervention, so Haldol, two and a half milligrams, three times a day, plus two and a half milligrams as needed throughout the ICU stay, the comparator was placebo, and the outcome, I quite liked it. It was number of days alive and out of hospital up to 90 days after randomization. So, you know, it incorporates not only mortality, but also gives you at least a sense of, well, were these 90 days in the ICU or 90 days in hospital? Nope. We were looking at number of days alive and out of hospital, and it was uh, analyzed using intention to treat. Okay. So patients in the ICU with delirium and randomized to either what sounds like standing Haldol versus placebo uh, during their stay. Is that right? Exactly. Okay. Uh, what did the patients look like? So 1,700 patients were approached and 1,000 were randomized. Average age was 71, 33% women, 10% had cancer, 10% had COVID, 65% uh, were in a medical ICU, half had hyperactive delirium and half had hypoactive delirium, and 64% were mechanically ventilated. Alrighty. What did they find? 
So the Haldol group overall got a daily dose of 8 milligrams for a median of 4 days, and the comparator group got the same amount of placebo. And I should also note that there was open-label antipsychotic use, and it was balanced in the two arms, like 13% in one arm, 13% in the placebo arm. So with all that in mind, you know, what was the primary outcome? The mean days alive and out of hospital were 36 days in the Haldol group versus 33 days in the placebo group. That was a mean difference of three days with a very wide confidence interval and a large p-value. Secondary outcomes, overall mortality, again, you know, this is up to 90 days, was 36% in the Haldol group and 43% in the um, placebo group. And then serious adverse events were actually pretty common between the two arms. Okay. What were some of the limitations here? Yeah, I, I think one limitation is that, don't get me wrong, it's very impressive. We got a, you know, a clinical trial of a thousand people. It would have been ideal, of course, if it was even larger, but it's hard to really blame them on that. So sample size was was one. And then another limitation, it's impossible, obviously, to prevent open label use of antipsychotics for other reasons. It would have been nice if the use of antipsychotics was much more rare, but that is what it is. Fair enough. And, you know, I don't know how the dose may have affected things, but it seems like a pretty healthy dose of Haldol. You know, I can think of times I'm using it. I, I usually go low, start low, like 0.5, see how someone does with that. I don't know if that could have played any role here or not, but uh, anyways. Yeah, it, it's, it's a good point, John, but you're right. So like, if it was a much lower dose, then I think we could have said, ah, well, maybe it just wasn't enough Haldol kind of thing. But we certainly can't criticize it for that standpoint. It's not like they did, they weren't given enough Haldol, but you're right. Like that is a decent dose. Like I wouldn't go that high on the ward, but of course this was uh, in the ICU setting. Yeah, they can control things a little bit better there. Uh, okay. What was the take home point? You know, among patients in the ICU with delirium, treatment with Haldol did not lead to a significantly greater number of days alive and out of hospital at the 90-day mark compared to placebo. Okay. Uh, you know, I know this was the ICU and, you know, we often are thinking more about like on the ward, but is this practice changing at all for you? Well, it's kind of sobering, right? Because we see a lot of antipsychotic use for adults with delirium and this clearly shows in the sickest of sick patients, it's not improving outcomes. So it just gives me some more pause, but it's also challenging because when patients are acutely delirious, if they're at risk of harm to themselves or others, of course, we're going to be giving Haldol uh, or, or something. Uh, I shouldn't say of course, I say often, <laughs> that's what occurs. Uh, we can see what people's practice variability is. But certainly this idea of standing Haldol, that sure as heck does not seem to be uh, an effective strategy. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. All right, John, uh, next up is the good stuff. What good stuff are you going to talk about? Uh, so we'll try to find a link um, via the CBC, but it was recently the Arctic Winter Games, and there's just some incredible sport that they do as part of these. And one of the events is called the Knuckle Hop. And I guess historically it was actually used as part of like seal hunting because the motion sort of mimics a seal on the ice. Anyways, watch this guy named Chris Stipdonk. You know, he's like the world champ when it comes to the knuckle hop. It's an incredible feat of strength and it's like exhausting to watch.
Okay. And just to be clear, so your good stuff is not seal hunting. <laughs> your good stuff is some sport I've never heard of. <laughs> yeah, very true. We're not talking about seal hunting. We're talking about a really interesting sport uh, in honor of, I guess. <laughs> Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Good. You know, cancel culture is alive and well, um, but this has nothing to do with seal hunting, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, um, my good stuff. So this is a book led by uh, Brandon Tang et al. It, it is the Vancouver Notes for Internal Medicine, a really impressive book. Congrats to him and his authors for getting this published. I'm a big fan of it, and we'll have a link in the show notes if people want to get a copy. All right, John, I think that's all we have for this week. All right, Mike, until next time. Okay, take care. The Roundstable is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable. Thanks to our audio editors, Emilio Garcia-Flores and Arjun Sharma. Also thanks to Amol Verma, founder of The Roundstable, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all the support.